This is the Best Song Podcast, an oral history of the first 90 years of the Academy Award for Best Original Song. The Best Song Podcast was made possible by the generous support of the following. Paulus Edukas, Terry Freerks, Tina Fry, Jeff Glazer, Mark Hollingsworth, Douglas Meacham, Mark Smith, The Sokolov Family, Colin Stokes, Adrian Quinn Washington, and Ben Watson. Follow the show on Twitter at Best Song Podcast, where you can participate in polls, talk about your favorite movie songs, and dive deeper into the rich history of movie music. Let's settle in now for another year in movie music with host Jeff Cummings. I'm really glad you're here for this episode covering the songs nominated for the Academy Award in 1955. It's going to be a great one. Movie music saw a rock and roll invasion in 1955, which changed how studios viewed the use of songs in movies and how the public accepted this change. On March 20th, 1955, The Blackboard Jungle premiered in theaters, and the opening credits featured Bill Haley and his comets singing Rock Around the Clock. The song was written three years earlier in 1952 by Max Friedman and James Myers, who was using the pseudonym Jimmy DeKnight, so it wasn't eligible for an Academy Award nomination. The song was recorded by a few different artists with only moderate success. That was still true when Bill Haley's band recorded it in spring 1954. The song was a B-side for 13 women and Rock Around the Clock was hardly noticed that year. It wasn't until the song appeared in Blackboard Jungle that it became a major challenger for the top spot on the Billboard charts. One, two, three o'clock, four o'clock, rock. Five, six, seven o'clock, eight o'clock, rock. Nine, ten, eleven o'clock, twelve o'clock, rock. We're gonna rock around the clock tonight. Put your flat rides on. Join me home. Several stories have circulated about how the song found its way into the dramatic film. The one that is most widely believed says that star Glenn Ford rummaged through his son's record collection looking for a song that teenagers were listening to at the time. Ford and the executives at MGM not only liked Rock Around the Clock, but felt it was the perfect tune to kick off the film. By putting it in a movie about rebellious teenagers at an inner-city school, 
Rock Around the Clock became an anthem for the counterculture youth rebellion that rock and roll embodied in the 1950s. Newspaper reports of the movie's opening weekend mentioned kids jumping out of their seats and dancing to the song. It was so impactful that people rushed out of movie theaters to their local record stores to find Rock Around the Clock, and the song shot up to number one Billboard charts in July 1955, four months after the film's release, and stayed there for eight weeks. It became the first rock and roll song to top the Billboard charts, not surprising given that the genre had just been developed as a white man's variation on the black man's rhythm and blues genre. When Rock Around the Clock hit number one on the Billboard chart, it officially began the magazine's rock era, leaving behind the silky smooth orchestral songs that Frank Sinatra, Bing Crosby, and Doris Day had made popular. Electric guitars and envelope-pushing lyrics became the new normal as of July 9, 1955. Blackboard Jungle made $5.5 million in the United States a big success given its $1 million budget. I don't know how much it costs to buy the rights for Rock Around the Clock, but it was worth every penny. The movie started a lot of trends that we still see in movies today. Just about all of the high school students in Blackboard Jungle were played by actors definitely in their 20s, including 27-year-old Sidney Poitier. The theme of the teacher reforming kids has become a cliche of school dramas because of Blackboard Jungle, and soon we'll see movies put previously written songs in their films to make the same kind of statement that Rock Around the Clock made. But most importantly, a new musical genre just burst into movie screens and gave notice that it was a strong one. I would equate this to Al Jolson singing Toot Toot Tootsie in The Jazz Singer in 1927. That signaled the eventual death of the silent film, and though it took about five years for Hollywood to really catch up, it eventually happened. Critics weren't signaling the death knoll of the movie Love Ballad, but they came close. Critic Boyd Martin said the music in Blackboard Jungle was hot. And I don't think they used that word to describe buttons and bows or over the rainbow. As classic and as wonderful as those songs are, they weren't getting kids running out of theaters into the record stores in droves. Many of Hollywood's songwriters weren't well-versed in the rock and roll style that Rock Around the Clock personified. Now, can you imagine Sammy Kahn writing Rock Around the Clock? Or Harold Arlen using an electric guitar in one of his songs? None of these veteran Hollywood songwriters were publicly crying out against rock and roll, especially since Rock Around the Clock could have been a fluke. Lucky for them, the song wasn't eligible for an Academy Award, but it really set itself apart from the songs that did earn Oscar nominations in 1955. Neither of the five songs have that rock and roll feel, and if you compare them to Rock Around the Clock, you can feel the past and present trying to coexist with the future. The same year as winning his first Oscar, Sammy Kahn was maintaining his hold as one of Hollywood's most requested lyricists. Khan had two songs nominated in 1955, I'll Never Stop Loving You and Love is the Tender Trap. In addition to these two songs, a third nominated song features the word love in its title, and the other two are love songs as well. This is not the first time all five nominated tunes are love songs, and it's not going to be the last. But again, 
When compared to Rock Around the Clock, it's obvious there's a gap in what the public was really listening to and what the studios were asking their songwriters to create. I'm not saying that every songwriter needs to toss away the conventional love song in 1955 in order to be popular with the public. I'm only saying that the success of Rock Around the Clock showed that movie songs could make this shift and still be embraced by audiences everywhere. When will we see this change? It could take a long time. With that, let's learn more about those two Sammy Kahn songs nominated for 1955, and remember, there may be plot spoilers ahead. The first one is Love is the Tender Trap, written for Kahn's buddy Frank Sinatra for the first of three movies for Old Blue Eyes that year. Jimmy Van Heusen was the composer for this song, his first Oscar nomination in 10 years. Van Heusen had been writing a musical flop on Broadway called Nellie Bly, and the films in which he and Johnny Burke wrote songs for being Crosby after the Bells of St. Mary's in 1946 were not doing big box office. Bing Crosby was on the way down, and Frank Sinatra was ready to take his place during the late 1940s. It didn't help that Johnny Burke was having confidence problems that made his partnership with Jimmy Van Heusen difficult, and Burke was increasingly becoming physically incapable of writing songs on a regular basis due to undisclosed illnesses that hinted at lingering cancers. Burke and Van Heusen ended their partnership in the early 1950s after another of their Broadway shows, Carnival in Flanders, failed miserably. That opened the door for Van Heusen to hitch his wagon to the next big singer, who happened to be Frank Sinatra. Though Sinatra and Van Heusen's relationship went back to the 1940s, it really began to blossom after Sinatra recorded the only good song to come out of the Carnival in Flanders show called Here's That Rainy Day. This is not to say that Jimmy Van Heusen was happy to be rid of his very long working association with Burke. Quote, I made no overt move to team up with any lyricist, in particular out of deference to the great Burke, who was ill so much of the time, and I didn't want it to appear like a deserter at such a time, Van Heusen was quoted as saying in his biography. As such, he would write songs under pseudonyms or hand in a melody to a record company and let anyone attach a lyric to it. Sinatra was the one who brought Sammy Kahn and Jimmy Van Heusen together. Kahn was in need of a composer after Jules Stein desired to return to Broadway, and Sinatra got them to write a song for The Tender Trap, based on a fairly successful play. The two songwriters clashed on their writing styles. Kahn worked quickly, while Van Heusen was used to a snail's pace. They met in the middle, as Kahn put it, to create, quote, one of the worst melodies I'd ever heard, end quote. The next day, Van Heusen came up with the melody that shaped the song into what appears in the movie. The performance borrows from Sinatra's performance of Three Coins in the Fountain just the previous year, using the song as a prelude to the overture of the opening credits. Sinatra is seen in the distance singing the song on what may or may not be a film set made to look like he's outdoors. He's walking slowly towards the camera, describing the things that can snare a man into falling in love. A woman's eyes, her sighs, and her thighs become the tender trap. Once he gets to the camera, the song is over, and we get Van Heusen's melody and a bit of Sinatra's harmonizing over the credits. The way Frank sings it, we're led to believe that this trap is not a good thing, but boy is it fun fighting it. You see a pair of laughing eyes 
And suddenly you're sighing sigh You're thinking nothing's wrong You string along, boy, then snap Those eyes, those sighs, they're part of the tender trap You're hand in hand beneath the tree And soon there's music in the breeze You're acting kind of smart until your heart just goes whap Those trees, that breeze, they're part of the tender trap Some starry night When her kisses make you tingle She'll hold you tight And you'll hate yourself for being single And all at once it seems so nice The folks are throwing shoes and rides You hurry to a spot That's just a dot on the map And then you wonder how it all came about It's too late now, there's no getting out You fell in love And love is the tender trial Sinatra plays a playboy theatrical agent named Charlie who has no immediate designs on marriage. Debbie Reynolds, fresh off playing an underage girl in love with Dick Powell last year in Susan Slept Here, plays a 20-year-old actress named Julie who becomes Charlie's client after getting a part in a Broadway musical. We see her in rehearsal where she is singing Love is the Tender Trap in a Broadway upbeat way as if she's happy to fall into the tender trap. You see a pair of laughing eyes And suddenly you're sighing sighs You're thinking nothing's wrong You string along, boy, then snap Those eyes, those sighs They're part of the tender trap You're hand in hand beneath the trees And soon there's music in the breeze You're acting kind of smart Until your heart just goes whack Part of the tender trap. So 
Charlie is in the audience at rehearsal and goes on stage to fix Julie's reading of the song. He goes to the piano and gives us the third full rendition of the song, just as he sang it at the beginning of the movie, but only with a piano accompaniment. That's immediately followed in the next scene by Julie rehearsing it as Charlie suggested. What did you think of it, Mr. Reader? Come see, come saw. But you heard what the director said. He said it had a lot of schmaltz. That surface schmaltz, Julie. The worst kind. You can't throw a song like that away. It's got to have more warmth. Look, I'll show you what I mean. You see a pair of laughing eyes And suddenly you're sighing sighs You're thinking nothing's wrong You string along, boy, then snap Let it settle a little bit. You're hand in hand beneath the trees, and soon there's music in the breeze. You're acting kind of smart until your heart just goes whack. Those trees, that breeze, they're part of the tender trap. Some starry night When her kisses make you tingle She'll hold you tight And you'll hate yourself For being single And all at once it seems so nice the folks are throwing shoes and rides You hurry to a spot that's just a dot on the map This certainly has given us plenty of chances to get the song buried in our minds, 
and it's only been 50 minutes of film time. We get our final performance of the song in the same setting that Sinatra sang it in the opening, with Sinatra and Reynolds joined by their co-stars Celeste Holm and David Wayne after everyone has their happy ending. We'll hear three women sing part of the verse as the women who used to date Charlie before Julie snagged him. You see a pair of laughing eyes And suddenly you're sighing sighs You're thinking nothing's wrong You string along, boy, then snap Boom, 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 boom. You wonder how it all came about It's too late now, there's no getting out You, you fell in love and love is the tender As far as first songs go for new writing partners, you couldn't have asked for a much better start. The official Sinatra recording made it all the way to number 7 on the U.S. Billboard charts, still good enough to sell a million records and continue Sinatra's strong comeback. The same week, Sinatra was playing opposite Marlon Brando in the film version of Guys and Dolls, and Sinatra had a couple of good songs there to keep his voice on the radio and on movie screens for the latter part of 1955 and most of the early part of 1956. Sinatra put music aside for his third movie of the year, playing a drug addict in The Man with the Golden Arm and earning a Best Actor Academy Award nomination for it. Another great song that Kahn and Van Heusen wrote for Frank Sinatra in 1955 was not eligible for an Oscar nomination, but it's worth mentioning. Frank Sinatra was playing the stage manager in a televised musical production of Our Town on the NBC network. One of the songs that Sinatra sings would become one of his biggest hits. Love and Marriage is the name of the second act of Thornton Wilder's play, and we get a lovely jaunting song that's based on that act's title. The first act was called The Daily Life, and this act is called Love and Marriage. And since we're doing a little singing here tonight, Mr. Leader, if you please. Love and marriage, love and marriage Go together like the horse and carriage This I tell you, brother You can't have one without the other Love and marriage, love and marriage It's an institute you can't disparage Ask the local gentry and they will say it's elementary. Try, try, try to separate them. It's an illusion. Try, 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 and you will only come to this conclusion. Love and marriage, love and marriage. Together like the horse and carriage Dad was told by mother You can't have one You can't have none You can't have one without the other <laughs> 
Thornton Wilder did not like that Our Town became a musical, but it was liked by audiences and critics when it aired in September 1955. The song Love and Marriage was an even bigger success, which helped Sinatra's exposure in The Tender Trap when it was released two months later. I'm sure you've heard Love and Marriage used as the opening song for the long-running TV comedy Married with Children, using the song to sarcastically mock love and marriage in this show about a couple who don't seem to be that happily married and in love. Khan was happy with the product of his new association with Jimmy Van Heusen, but he still clung to his partnership with Nicholas Brodsky for his second Oscar nomination of 1955. Instead of writing for Mario Lanza, whose career was on a downturn, this time the two wrote one song for Doris Day in her dramatic turn in Love Me or Leave Me. The movie follows the real-life Ruth Edding, from her days as a nightclub dancer for pay to becoming a somewhat popular singer. The script takes some liberties with Edding's life, though her rocky marriage to gangster Marty Snyder was true. A lot of the songs that Edding really sang in the 1920s and 1930s are featured in the movie, with two original songs created to give it an extra chance at Oscar glory. Brodsky and Khan wrote I'll Never Stop Loving You, which is performed only once but serves as a purpose to the movie's plot. Doris Day, as Ruth Edding, has gotten a job in a Hollywood musical, and she finds out that Johnny, her former piano player and band leader, is the film's musical director. The two of them go to the studio to look over the songs for the film, one of which is I'll Never Stop Loving You. It's a torch song that Johnny wrote, and it sings of the unrequited emotions Johnny has for Ruth, especially now that Ruth is married to Marty. Loving you, whatever else I may do, my love for you will live till time itself is through. I'll never stop wanting you, and when. time we meet the night doesn't question the stars that appear in the skies so why should I question the stars that appear in my eyes of this I'm more than just sure My love will last and endure I'll never No, I'll never stop
Love Me or Leave Me earned $5.6 million at the box office. But not everything that Doris Day touches turns to gold. Her official recording of I'll Never Stop Loving You didn't make it into the top 10 on the Billboard sales charts. Love Me or Leave Me was mostly fictional, but the film seemed to resonate with Academy voters. James Cagney, as Marty, received a Best Actor nomination, his first since winning for Yankee Doodle Dandy 13 years earlier. That nomination, as well as the song nomination, accounted for two of the six Academy Award nominations for the film. Earning eight Oscar nominations for 20th Century Fox in 1955 was Love is a Many Splendored Thing, featuring another Oscar winner in its lead role. Jennifer Jones played Han Su Yin, a doctor who is half Asian, half European. She earned a Best Actress nomination for the performance, in which she attempts to reconcile the two parts of her heritage in post-World War II Hong Kong, while falling in love with William Holden's American Journalist. Earning the nomination for writing the film's title song were Sammy Fain and Paul Francis Webster, two years removed for winning the Oscar for the Doris Day film Calamity Jane, and the song Secret Love. The story goes that composer Alfred Newman asked Fane to write a melody that could be used in Newman's underscore of the film, and Fane delivered a basic melody that is the first two measures of the song. Newman fell in love with it and asked Fane to expand on it further. I would estimate that at least half of the score features Fane's melody, but Fane doesn't get credit for participating in writing part of the score, which means he doesn't get credit for the film's Oscar nomination for Best Score. Only Newman is listed, marking his 31st Best Score Oscar nomination. One big moment for Fane's melody in the underscore comes as Jones and Holden are swimming across the bay to a friend's house. The two are starting to fall for one another, though Su Yin is trying to tie her feelings to being a more empathetic doctor. just want to drift and feel the sun on my face. You know, the last few weeks I've come alive. I like it. You've been good for me, Mark. I don't feel that the whole world is sick any longer. I'm glad. Once the studio heard the theme, executives knew they had a possible Oscar nominee on their hands if a lyric could be added. Fane asked Webster to do the duties, and after several fits and starts, Webster settled on a lyric that ties into the plot. For the film version, a chorus sings the song to help lift the mood from tragedy 
to celebrating the love story we had just witnessed. The song flows seamlessly from the last line of a letter that Holden's character had sent from his final assignment in Korea. We have not missed, you and I. We have not missed that many splendid thing. This is the first Oscar-nominated song to play in a film's finale before the closing credits. Often, drama films put their songs in the opening credits, never to be heard from again, or during the closing credits, after people start leaving the theater. It's possible the song would have played well at the beginning of the movie, but it has more impact at the end, especially since it takes place on a hill where the two main characters met often. A few lines of the lyrics read, once on a high and windy hill, in the morning mist, two lovers kissed and the world stood still. Doris Day, Frank Sinatra, and others turned it down, thinking the song was a bit too heavy for their tastes. In keeping with the choral aspect of the film version, the four aces fit the mold well. So well, in fact, that their record version sold nearly two million copies, spent two weeks at number one, and enjoyed five months on the Billboard sales charts in the fall and winter of 1955. It was the number one record played on the radio from October 15th to November 15th.
kissed and the world stood still Then your fingers touched my silent heart and taught it how to sing Yes, true love of many splendor My silent heart and taught it how to sing. Yes, true love. Love is a Mini Splendor Thing made history with its two weeks as the top song on the new Billboard Hot 100 chart. It was the first song written for a motion picture to be the top song in the country, and it earned its top spot a couple of months after Rock Around the Clock changed the type of music that was popular among record buyers. So what does that mean? It means the typical love ballad and the rock song could coexist with the movie-going and record-buying public. Our next song was created in nearly the same way as Love is a Mini Splendor Thing, starting as a melody composed as part of the underscore and then requested that it be turned into a full-fledged song. That song is Unchained Melody, which springs from the love theme that Alex North wrote for the prison drama Unchained. Wait for me, Mary. I'm counting on you. What are you going to do? That's the guy I've been telling you about. He doesn't say much, but he's burning inside all the time. He'll never last. Be a lot of help in making it over the fence for good. I'm nursing him along nice and easy. You won't have to wait long, Elaine. Just be careful, honey. I don't want anything to happen to you. Sure look great. Now, I didn't know whether you'd come out here to visit me or not. I don't know why you'd say a thing like that. North was asked to turn his love theme into a song that could be performed in the film. North had to work fast so the scene could be shot before filming finished. He reached out to lyricist Hi Zaret to help him complete the song. Zaret was hesitant to write the song, feeling that it was another commercial grab by the studio to make an extra buck. According to an article in The Atlantic, Zaret's excuse for saying no initially was that he was painting his house. Unchained Melody does not include the word unchained, even though North thought it would help it when it became a record so the song could have some attachment to the movie. Zaret could not find a way to get the word into the song and turned it in anyway. 
though Warner Brothers executives wanted the word in there to help record buyers link it to the film, there wasn't much time to ask for a rewrite. The song is performed in the movie by Todd Duncan, who plays one of the inmates of a minimum security prison, singing about a lover he has not seen in a long time. A long, lonely time, as the song says. This is a mixture of blues and jazz, and might remind you of Blues in the Night or Since I Kissed My Baby Goodbye, which are also sung in a jail cell by black men. The other prisoners listen to Duncan's minute-long performance, thinking about the loved ones waiting for them on the outside and hoping they are still waiting. Todd Duncan originated the role of Porgy in the 1935 production of Porgy and Bess and became the first black man to sing with a major opera company with the production of Pagliacci in 1945. Duncan appeared in the 1945 movie Syncopated, then made Unchained as his last Hollywood film. Like William Gillespie, the originator of the Blues in the Night song, Todd Duncan's performance was never put on a record so he goes down in history as the least known performer of this song, especially among those who never saw Unchained. Band conductor Les Baxter released a choral version first, which went to number five on the Billboard sales charts. Al Hibbler was the first to release a solo recording of the song in early 1955, getting it up to number five on the charts and spending 18 weeks in radio rotation. More of Zaret's lyrics are heard here, mostly about a river's ripples that send a message to the singer's love to wait for him. If it wasn't going to be Todd Duncan, at least there was a black man making the song popular. Time goes by so slowly And time can do so much Oh, you still mine I need your love 
need your love God speed your love to me lonely rivers flow to the sea to the sea to the open arms of the sea lonely rivers sigh wait for me wait for me I'll be coming home wait for me Hi Zaret, who was born Hyman Zaritsky in 1907, had some moderate success as a songwriter in Ten Pan Alley, but unlike many of his colleagues, he never made the move to Hollywood until asked to write the lyrics for Unchained Melody. He continued writing music through the 1950s and 1960s to age 99. As for Alex North, he was making a name for himself in Hollywood after writing the jazzy score for A Streetcar Named Desire in 1951. That gave him his first Oscar nomination, followed by the score of Death of a Salesman the same year and Viva Zapata in 1952. North had only been in Hollywood for five years and in that time had massed five Oscar nominations. In addition to writing the song Unchained Melody, he was nominated for writing the score for the film adaptation of The Rose Tattoo in 1955. The final song in our list of nominees for 1955 brings Fred Astaire and Leslie Caron together for Daddy Longlegs, a musical that has a lot of fun and frivolity but was rife with sadness for Fred Astaire. Just as production was starting, his wife Phyllis was diagnosed with lung cancer. Astaire took some time off from filming to take care of her, and after she died in September 1954, 20th Century Fox considered replacing Astaire to allow him to grieve without disrupting production. But Astaire decided to continue with the film, trying to hide his grief as his character, a rich man named Jervis, falls in love with Leslie Caron's Julie. Astaire would retreat to his trailer after filming many scenes, cry incessantly, then return to the set with red puffy eyes. You can see the effects of his grief in a few scenes, though makeup hit it well. 
Johnny Mercer was tasked with writing the songs for Daddy Longlegs. He had just finished his work writing lyrics for MGM's Seven Brides for Seven Brothers when 20th Century Fox asked him to work on Daddy Longlegs. He submitted songs in several different styles, from ballet to jazz to blues. The lengthy ballet dance sequence had music by Alex North, and Alfred Newman stepped in to fill in with some underscore as well. But all of the songs are solely by Mercer, including the nominated tune, Something's Gotta Give. When the job came to write the song score for Daddy Longlegs, Johnny Mercer was ready to let go of his control over the popular music company Capitol Records. He co-founded the company in 1942, and as it grew, the complexity of running the business wore on Mercer. He and his co-founders decided to sell their interest in Capitol Records to the British company EMI for $8.5 million. Had Mercer stuck around for 10 more years, he would have been rewarded with possibly landing the biggest rock band of all time, the Beatles. Capitol Records became the U.S. distributor of all the Beatles albums beginning in 1964 and made a mint off the Liverpool foursome. But the sale of the company meant Mercer had more time to devote to his first love, songwriting. When he was rehearsing the songs Mercer had written, Fred Astaire was concerned that the musical had no standout song that could do well as a commercial record. All of the other songs in the film were done as performances at a dance, or they put more attention on the instrumental accompaniment more than the lyrics. Mercer was happy to oblige Astaire, though the story goes that coming up with this song was not easy. Mercer has said in interviews that he was riddled with anxiety over this crucial song, but inspiration hit him in the middle of the night when he went to the piano and wrote the skeleton of the song in a few hours. There is a very large age gap between Jervis and Julie. Jervis is likely in his 50s, since Astaire was 55 years old, and Julie is in college. We're starting to see more films featuring love interests with large age gaps in the 1950s, as society norms eased up a bit, and the production code seemingly allowed such plots to become movies. Age gap aside, it's a treat to see Caron and Astaire dancing together, as they do after Astaire sings Something's Gotta Give. It connects love to the laws of physics, specifically the theoretical question of what happens when an irresistible force meets an immovable object. In this case, the irresistible force is a beautiful woman, and an older man who was, at the time, resistant to getting married is the immovable object. At the end of this eight-minute sequence, something will give, and the two will be in love. And we begin to accept the age difference simply because Johnny Mercer said things that were irresistible, immovable, repressible, and implacable are bound to meet. I don't think you ever will. Mary? Hmm. That all depends. You know, there's an old theory. I mean... When an irresistible force such as you meets an old immovable object like me, you can bet as sure as you live 
something's gotta give, something's gotta give, something's gotta give. When an irrepressible smile such as yours warms an old implacable heart such as mine, don't say no. Because I insist Somewhere, somehow, someone's gonna be kissed So on God Who knows what the fates have in store From their vast, mysterious sky I'll try hard Ignoring those lips I adore But how long can anyone try? Fight, 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 fight Fight it with all of our might Chances are some heavenly star-spangled night We'll find out as sure as we live Something's gotta give, something's gotta give, something's gotta give
When an irresistible force such as you meets an old immovable object like you. Did anything happen yesterday? A man got robbed. What a shame. A girl got married. Oh, that's nice. Who did she marry? A man. Oh. They've been in love for a long time. Oh. Anything else happen? Yes, but it's not in the paper. Oh. Good night, Julie. Good night, Jervis. It's a very long sequence, yeah, but it all combines to make Something's Gotta Give the standout song of the film. Though Johnny Mercer had some hits singing his and other people's songs throughout his career, he never recorded Something's Gotta Give. Three versions did sell well in 1955, with the McGuire sisters peaking at number six on the Billboard charts, and Sammy Davis Jr. barely cracking the top ten with his cover version. Bing Crosby didn't officially release Something's Gotta Give as a single, but he did record it for regular play on his radio show. This was the eighth Academy Award-nominated song that Fred Astaire had introduced on film, and it was to be his last. Astaire made three more musicals in the 1950s, including Funny Face with Audrey Hepburn and Silk Stockings, both in 1957. Silk Stockings included the song and dance routine The Ritz Rock and Roll, which was Cole Porter's attempt at writing rock music while staying firmly in his jazzy background. The performance ends with a stare smashing his signature top hat, signaling the end of his musical career. Yeah, Fred Astaire had said before that he was retiring, but this time it was real. He didn't sing in his future films, including his Oscar-nominated performance in The Towering Inferno in 1974. Astaire is second to Crosby in the number of nominated songs that he sang on film, and his legacy is one that has lasted through multiple generations. 
Of course, no one knew that Something's Gotta Give would be Astaire's final Oscar-nominated song performance, but the Academy should have asked him to come to the Academy Awards ceremony to be saluted and to sing as well. Though movie fans, film studios, and just about all of Hollywood was excited about the Academy Awards ceremony on March 21, 1956, the rest of the country was still buzzing about 42-year-old black woman Rosa Parks refusing to give up her seat on a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. Her arrest gave the civil rights movement a figurehead more powerful than any that existed at the time and made national headlines. The boycott of Montgomery buses that lasted from early December 1955 to late December 1956 didn't spill over into the entertainment pages of the nation's newspapers, but it gave the country a talking point over things that were still segregated in the United States, including movie theaters. Eight-time nominated composer and arranger Robert Emmett Dolan was the producer of the 1956 Oscar telecast, and he worked hard to make sure all the nominated actors were there. But the biggest star of the night wasn't nominated. It was Grace Kelly, the previous year's Best Actress winner, who was set to jet off to Monaco in a couple of days to marry Prince Rainier. The crowds outside the Pantages Theater in Hollywood went crazy for her. Frank Sinatra was one of the acting nominees in attendance, but once again, he wouldn't be bothered with singing at the ceremony. Just as he did last year, Dean Martin sang in Frank's place. So Sinatra didn't want to step on stage to sing, but he was willing to be on stage for a lengthy period of time to hand out the two score awards. He called Alfred Newman Pappy when he announced that Newman won for writing part of the score for Love is a Mini Splendored Thing, the seventh Academy Award for Newman. As he had done six times previously, Newman simply said thank you when accepting the award. Doris Day wasn't over her stage fright, so Jane Powell stepped in to sing I'll Never Stop Loving You, while Eddie Fisher was the choice to sing Love is a Mini Splendored Thing. Harry Belafonte and his longtime guitarist, Miller Thomas, recreated the scene for Unchained Melody, using the same instrumentation used for the film version. And making his first appearance at the Oscars, Maurice Chevalier sang Something's Gotta Give then stayed on stage to announce the winner of the Best Original Song. Though Sammy Fain didn't get thanks from Newman for creating a memorable melody, it didn't matter when Chevalier announced that Sammy Fain and Paul Francis Webster won for writing Love is a Mini Splendored Thing. Sammy Fain didn't say anything at the microphone, but Webster thanked Buddy Adler, the producer of Love is a Mini Splendored Thing. Their song, and Newman's win, marked the fourth time that one film won a score award and best song. The others, as you might remember, are The Wizard of Oz, Pinocchio, and High Noon. Sammy Kahn and Jimmy Van Heusen didn't win an Oscar for Love is the Tender Trap, but they still got to hold an award in 1956 when the Academy of Television Arts and Sciences announced them as the winner of Best Musical Contribution for Our Town. Love and Marriage was the only song from the production singled out for an Emmy nomination, though Kahn and Van Heusen competed against themselves for this category for their entire song score, as well as a song from an episode of the Ford Star Jubilee Anthology series. Unchained Melody wasn't named as the Best Song Academy Award winner of 1955, and like most tunes that come from relatively obscure films, it might have been lost in a vault forever but it had the best shelf life of any nominated song that year. 
1965, Bill Medley was teaming up with Bobby Hatfield as the Righteous Brothers, and they recorded a sultrier version. Hatfield initially thought his rendition was not very good, but Medley quickly assured him that it was perfect. That version was a B-side for the song Hung On You. That song didn't grab the attention of radio disc jockeys who liked Unchained Melody more. The song reached number four on the Billboard Hot 100 in 1965, and that might have been the end of the story. But in the late 1980s, producer Lisa Weinstein had a romantic movie about a man who was shot dead, but his spirit sticks around to help his girlfriend avenge his death. The movie was going to be called Unchained Melody after the Righteous Brothers song that was going to feature in what we now know to be the film's iconic love scene. The title changed to Ghost, but the song remained, and the revival of Unchained Melody was a boon not only for the Righteous Brothers, but for songwriters Alex North and Hy Zarrett. Both were alive when the song appeared in Ghost, and they received very hefty royalty checks for every one of the one million plus copies sold that year. And, as is often the case, North and Zaret were hardly ever mentioned in stories about this song's resurgence. It's almost always Bill Medley and Bobby Hatfield mentioned alongside Patrick Swayze, Demi Moore, and that very phallic Clay. Unchained Melody was North's only nomination in the original song category, but he earned 10 more nominations from 1956 to 1984. He died in 1991, never earning a competitive Oscar, but he was awarded an honorary Oscar in 1986, the first composer to win an honorary Academy Award. The great thing is that he was alive long enough to enjoy the rebirth of Unchained Melody, thanks to Ghost. Will the best song of 1956 find that kind of success in its songwriter's lifetimes? There's only one way to find out. Join me on the next episode of the Best Song Podcast. Thanks so much for singing along with me today. Let's do it again next time. 
The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.